Thanks for joining us for another intriguing edition of the Stack Pack. Perhaps you can help solve four very boring mysteries. Or was it three? <laughs> or not. Dude, it's four. four. Okay. Uh, what's up, guys? We're the Stack Pack back for another week. We're covering, what is it? Is, it, is it episode 20? 20? Yeah. yeah. Season Finally. three, episode it's 20? Yeah. It's only taken us nine weeks to get to this point. We've been but. slacking, guys, but <laughs> we're sorry. Well, yeah, I mean, Dan and I have been like on an amazing vacation, and you've been stressing at your new job, but yeah, it's still okay. still the same. Just kidding. Um, so Dan <laughs> is here, Rodan, and Eli. Um, Dan, where you're in Hotlanta, even though it's cold, cold Atlanta. Um, Rodan on the road. Well, it was chilly today. Like, I mean, the high was probably like 65. So springy. I don't know. And then Eli's in Dallas as always. Big Bad Vinyl Dead. And I'm David. Yeah, man, um, I'm here. At the home base in El Paso, Texas. What's up? The home the home base. The motherland. The motherland. Uh, Dan and I got off the... Uh, we were on the Joko cruise. Um, and we'll be there next year if you want to come and hang out with us on a boat with a bunch of nerds. Um, it was amazing. Lots of podcasters, comedians, and musicians. Wait. And fucking nerds. Wait. You know what? I just realized this hmm. isn't episode 20. This is episode 21. Okay. It's 21. So we have two more of the season, right? Yeah. 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 So and then we're already planning our next uh, our next movie finale. Yeah, our our mystery movie, is that what we've been calling them? I think that's what it's I, don't that, know. I think that's what I've been titling them. Um, I think we're going to watch the movie that's called Without a Kiss Goodbye and it's the movie about the um, baby uh, that lady whose babies just kept on dying. <laughs> oh, that's really me. Uh, yeah, um, it's factual. Anyway, it wasn't her fault. But anyway, um, yeah. So hopefully, it's uh, it's funny. But you know what? I, c- I also kind of want to watch Amelia. Like, there's so many Amelia Earhart movies. I know, and I feel like we've talked about Amelia Earhart a lot on this podcast already. <laughs> but yeah, um, <laughs> more more than I'd like. Really? I don't know. I find it so interesting. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> more than I'd like, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that later today. We're, we're covering it's it, we'll, we'll find the funny in this episode. There's a lot of cases that aren't the most interesting and just have no ending. So, yeah. Um, so that's the cell for today's episode. <laughs> you're probably, tur- you're probably turning us off right oh, now. This sucks right now. I'm turning yeah. this off. <laughs> um, but let's get into it. The first case is wanted. Um, and we're going to be talking about Tanya Koprik, right? We're taking you to uh, March of 1980. Um, is this a story about that guy that looks like Larry Balky from Perfect Strangers? <laughs> the boyfriend? <laughs> yeah. Your, your references, man. I'm like, are, are, <laughs> do we grow up in the same era? <laughs> I think uh, probably not. <laughs> Perfect Strangers. Um yeah, oh, yeah. So now that you say it, he does. It's been a while since I've seen that. You know what's funny is um, one time on, on our Hulu, like one time Dan was like, "Oh yeah, pilot of Perfect Strangers," and then and then he, I don't think he watched the whole thing. But like after every time I'd finish, I'd watch like a brand new episode of something, like the newest episode. It would immediately, it would immediately be like. Season one episode one of Perfect Strangers is next. <laughs> I was just like, fucking why? Why? Why are you why is that where you go, Hulu? And then Dan I used to like that and then show. Dan was like, Yeah, yeah, that was me. I started it. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> Whoops. Why do you go there? I don't want to go here. No, not perfect strangers. <laughs> it was such a rough pilot like, oh really it was terrible was like, i've seen it yeah dude pilots I saw are the not pilot good. and at the end of it i watched the whole thing and i just sat there i was like why did i think this show was good well. dude, me too. and i'm like more than more than that why did they turn this into a multi-series multi-season series <laughs> tanya corporate coprick falls for a much younger man named richard bocklage and um he's the belkiest the Belkyish oh, guy, right? Is he the al- Belkyish guy? The la- yeah, almost the same last name, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so she a doctor, he a farm student. Uh, he, he wants to be a, f- uh, a pharmacy technician, right? Is that what? It, yeah, he wants to be a pharmacist. Yeah. What the hell? He wants to be a pharmacist. Um, and like I said, I think she's she's 10 years older than him. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. The lady older. But- okay. Okay. 
But you, you want to know something funny? He was going to a university for something you can now get in like 90 days on a 1-800 number on TV. Oh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that. We'll get to his, his troubled uh, academic career. So he's a St. Louis boy, true-blooded, blue-blooded American. I don't know. He's an American guy. Tanya um, is a recent immigrant from Yugoslavia. You know, she made her dream come true. She's a doctor living the American dream. But she wanted a man so, to share her dream with. So she is kind of the Balky in this episode. Oh. Right? <laughs> the one. <laughs> She's the perfect stranger. It's like That's perfect strangers with fucking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, the relationship moved fast. Um, he moved in pretty soon after they started dating. And um, six months into the relationship, he proposed to her. And we have all of her Yugoslavian friends that just didn't trust him. He's like, he's using her financially, using car, using money, using her morally and financially. Um, using <laughs> he's a user. Uh, stuff like that. Using credit card. Using MasterCard. Using Visa. Using Amex. Using, <laughs> using car. Using bathroom. <laughs> okay, I went using her hole for. I, I went more French there at the end. Pleasures. <laughs> using her body. <laughs> that's not what you go. That's not what people from Yugoslavia sound yeah, like. Yeah, no, I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> using her, how do you say body? I don't know, fucking. <laughs> I like it. Sorry, like full it. country of France. Um, sorry for that. <laughs> I um, already hate Americans. It's fine. <laughs> so, yeah, he was a bit of a user. Um, he was also a bit of a slacker in school. And, was, you know, he... Um, uh, they, they had, like, one of his uh, professors or teachers is just like, uh, he, you know, he he had the, like, the drive seemingly, but he wouldn't work and do the work, and he wasn't uh, proactive enough. Um he showed up. He was eager, but yeah, not enough. Did nothing. Um, so in July of 1980, Richard finds out that he's pretty much kicked the fuck out of school. Uh, his grades are terrible. <laughs> yeah, he's, um, definitely, he's a big doof. And um, and so what does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he goes and like whines to Tanya, and is like, "Use your connections as a doctor, and help me out. Get me back into class or into school." And she refuses in, in the uh, in the in the reenactment with a very non-Yugoslavian accent. She's like, "You gotta, you know, do it yourself, sweetheart." <laughs> yeah, I added the sweetheart, but <laughs> Did she sounded like she was from the country. Um, so she Darling. she wouldn't help him get back into school, and this leads to more confrontations. And apparently, on September second of that year, she kicks him out of the house. She's like, "Get your shit." Get your shit. Get out of here. She's got lots of different voices. <laughs> um, and um, and then, okay, so now this is the part that's, like, kind of a bummer. Like, what's going through your mind? How do you think this would work? Um, he, so then what he does is he just goes to school. Like, he didn't get kicked out. He just <laughs> goes to school like nothing happened. And the teacher like is like, can I talk to you? You're not in this class, <laughs> You're not Andre. in my class. <laughs> You're kind of not supposed to be here. And he like, Balky. and he's like, and he like storms off. No, yeah, he says he's like, oh my, it's I know, I know, I struggled at the beginning, but my, I promise, I'm I'm trying now. And he's like, it has nothing to do with your grades. You're just not enrolled in this class, You're dude. Not like, in the class, here. like that's not uh, the, the in the reenactment. The guy's like. There's certain, like, ways we do things. You can't just come back. And he also says... Um, you can't just come in this class all willy-nilly and yeah, just uh, he also says put that, on the lab coat. He also says something along the lines of, oh, yeah, your... Um, the paperwork ha just hasn't gone through yet. Like, I've been reinstated, but the paperwork hasn't gone through. And the teacher's like, well, you know, um, that's not the way we do this. And then so he storms off. He, like, throws his pharma pharmacy coat on the floor and he just gets the fuck out of there. Um, and he's a big, sad bummer man now. 
He writes to the admissions office of the school, begging to be reinstated in the class or the program or whatever it's called. And um, they like even have a little gathering of uh, officials of the school, and they deny his appeal. Um, and then he busts a very like Better Call Saul move. Uh, did you guys see that episode of Better Call Saul this year, where like all the people are meeting no. to see if he's reinstated as a lawyer? And he, no, I haven't he, seen like, this year's yet. He does this. Saul like storms or Jimmy McGill. He like storms as the people are leaving. He's like, oh, you know, trying to find out like why he got he gets denied and stuff. And I just couldn't stop thinking of Better Call Saul. But what? Yeah. So what he does is he like parks in front of the school and he like walks around the school trying to find the dean. And everyone's like, oh, uh, you know, he's not here. We don't know if he's gonna be back. Um, and he was carrying like a manila folder with something kind of bulky in it. And after the fact, a lot of people thought that maybe it was a weapon that he was carrying with him. Like already at that point, like he was maybe like already off the chain. Um, yeah. Off the chain is not. <laughs> he's not off the chain. <laughs> Yo, that fool is off, off the, the chain, hook. bro. He's right off the <laughs> meat hook. He's fresh. Um, um, so, yeah, he's storming around the school looking for the dean and doesn't find anybody. Um, so three hours after this incident, Tanya returns home from work where she is um, shot three times in the face at close range. And there was actually a witness. Um, the witness saw this man walk up to the doctor's car and shoot her right through the window. And she did identify the man as her boyfriend, the guy that she had seen around the building with Tanya. So the autopsy showed three times in the head, shot with a 45. And that's a handgun, right? I don't know anything about guns. They immediately identified the man as Richard Blockage. B- Bocklage. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they find the car in Canada, about 900 miles away from where they were. Um, abandoned. So he's been on the run. And then they talk to a cop who's like, uh, I'm pretty sure he's got to be back in the States by now. And uh, he probably just left the car and, uh, you know, to leave a trail that he would be in somewhere in Canada. Um, two months after the murder, this is probably the creepiest part, is Tanya's parents in Yugoslavia receive an unsigned letter that reads like a, quote, terrorist manifesto, according to the stack man. And it said, like, it says stuff along the lines of, like, your daughter Tanya was executed. She caused so much turmoil. The act was necessary. Uh, shit like that. Like, just fucking nutso garbage. And um, that's kind of where the case ends. I didn't read any more into the case, really, but Richard Bocklidge, uh never got caught, according to this episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Anything else? Yeah, I didn't look any. I didn't look any further into this either. Did you, Dan? I did. And it, it's a dead case. So he's just out running free. Has he like assumed a different name? Like, you know what's weird is the only one I looked up was the Lost Loves case. <laughs> it has a weird little twist, and I see why that wasn't on the tacked to the episode of Unsolved Mysteries later. But we'll get to that. Yeah. No. The only thing I found on this was the last uh, time it was. <laughs> like nationally aired was in 2000 on America's most wanted. Other than that, there's no new leads. Wow. This guy actually got away with it. That's crazy. Yeah. It's so how old, how old would this guy be right now? He'd still be pretty young, right? Yeah. I mean, give or take like, he was like 30 in the early nineties. Yeah. Maybe a little younger. So what? 30 years ago. Yeah. So yeah. 60. He could very well still be like a 60-year-old Canadian man who's just like, yeah, I killed a lady. Just shot her in the fucking face. It's crazy. Because they because they wouldn't let me be a pharmacy tech. <laughs> oh, that's... <laughs> that's the saddest thing. I just keep thinking of the pharmacist from Superstore. <laughs> that like, sleazy fucker. <laughs> I forgot about him. The, the the like newer episodes he hasn't come out. Yeah, that's much, ca- so. I haven't thought about that. He wasn't really in. He hasn't. Yeah. Um, Superstore. Uh, Eli got Dan and I into it. Very much. Oh man, it. I love it. I love it. Oh man, it's addicting. So so addicting. 
<laughs> I, I've actually been going hard on Brooklyn Nine Nine. I don't know why I sat on it for so long. Um, the one that I've been trying to catch up on is Good Place. Oh, I yeah, we I watched that whole thing. Yeah. Um, it's very cool. It's very smart. It's <laughs> the concept's so bogus. Like it's just one of those things you don't even. You're never like, hey, it's, that's not plausible. You're just like, shut up and like have a good time. Yeah, and laugh. It's just in, you just enjoy it. It's funny. <laughs> that's what Brooklyn Nine Nine is too. It's like they're like catching drug dealers and like making jokes about Die Hard, I, and it's just like I oh, love, I love <laughs> my favorite scene that I've watched multiple times and I share with a lot of people. He's talking to he's got a lineup of like five dudes, and he's the girl's like, what did what did he look like? She's like, I didn't see him, but I heard him. He was in the men's bathroom, or he was in the women's bathroom, and he was singing "I Want It That Way" by the Backstreet Boys. Oh, <laughs> and he makes all of them sing it, and then they all like break out. They all like it, finish it and together. He's like, oh. he's like, "I feel chills," and she's like, "That's it, number five, number five, murdered my brother." He's like, oh, I forgot about that part. <laughs> uh, oh my god, I forgot about that part. <laughs> so this one's another wanted case. We're taking you back to the hot, hot summer of. Uh, August 1958, um, and we're actually taking you to wait. Wait, this one is pretty. Inter- this is the one about the the abandoned soldier, right? The pilot, yeah. Sorry, okay. The hot, hot summer of 1958, and even to add to that hotness, we're taking you to Death Valley, California, um, where it was apparently 120 degrees at that time of the year. Ugh, that sounds Fuck. miserable. Yeah. So 42 miles from town. Um, a game warden finds an abandoned vehicle and this vehicle belonged to a fellow named Paul Whipke and he, uh, was a soldier. He was in the army and he'd been missing at that point for five weeks and he had been considered and declared, I guess, a deserter. Um, it was surprising news to his friends because he was a really good soldier um, he was a very loyal, very straight-laced guy. Um, to call him a deserter was pretty weird. They they didn't get that. That wasn't in his character. So he was an ROTC honor graduate. Um, in 1954, he got into a very prestigious and exclusive pilot school in the Army. By July 1956, he was stationed at a base in California and two years later, he was like a lieutenant, but, had, but he was assigned the... Uh, duties of a captain or something like that. Right. And so, yeah, he was making his way up the chain. He was a straight laced dude to, you know, from all accounts, his friends did say that he had that, that how, what's the name of that complex? Um, we're talking about, on they were talking about it on Joko Cruise. Uh, you know, the, is it the fraud complex where you just, no matter how successful you are, you, you know, you don't have that. You're unsure of your capabilities Oh, I've never heard of that. You know, you kind of think you're like a bit of a phony, you know. I think a lot of people have it. I'm um this <laughs> as many podcasts as I've listened to, I think a lot of celebrities have that where they're just like super famous and they're just like, "Oh, I feel like a fucking phony. Like, I don't deserve this." And, and it can That's it doesn't weird. have to be with very famous people. It could be in any profession. But yeah, it seemed like he had a little bit of that. Yeah, no, I could see that. I can see how a lot of people deal with that. What's that called? Is it called fraud complex? It's called imposter syndrome. There you go. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, imposter syndrome, where you just... Yeah, I've never heard of that. Yeah, there you go. It's where an individual doubts their accomplishments with a persistent initialized fear of being exposed as a fraud, even though they're not a fraud. That's weird. Um, And it seemed like he had a bit of that. They did notice a personality change when um, he got all this uh, new responsibilities and stuff. He was a little bit more somber. In 1957, he spent a couple months at this camp where he was an observation pilot for government atomic bomb tests. So, I mean, that's what they say in the episode. I'm guessing he would fly around above these explosions and monitor them and report. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know what there's a report. Yep, that that yep that one blew up. <laughs> Not necessarily fly above, but you know, around an observ uh, an observation pilot would take off and fly within maybe 
maybe 25 miles of the detonation and just kind of circular circle around it and inside the airplane would be uh, cameras that would basically shoot or they would have you know if not cameras uh, scientific equipment uh, that would you know measure the atmosphere the radiation levels and all that other stuff interesting i i so just picture like him what what did you observe mr whipkey um that shit blew up <laughs> i watched it <laughs> there was a city that, now there's not that shit blew up <laughs> um yeah so he was just watching it but yeah i guess that makes sense like they had like you know the fucking dorothy 2 from twister and they were throwing it in the explosion <laughs> that's you Basically, yeah, Dorothy that's what he was. He was Dorothy, Dorothy too. Uh, thanks. I took you a little bit, Eli, but I'm glad you enjoyed my Twister joke. Uh, by the way, the real Dorothy was actually called Toto. Uh, Twister's in Was movie. it called Toto or was it called Dorothy? No, it was Dorothy. It was in, Dorothy. in the movie, it's called Dorothy, but the actual device that it was based off of in the movie is called Toto. Oh, really? So this was terrible. Radioactive fallout. Um... It fucked him up. He had terrible blotches all over his skin. Apparently, uh, some time after that, he had to have all of his teeth extracted. Oof. And then they just kind of, you know, skim over that part and on to the next he, part. He got, he, he got what some people call <laughs> the uh, the Washington. He got the, wooden Only teeth. the best wooden teeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> only the best wooden teeth will do for, Cap- for Lieutenant Whipkey. <laughs> Lieutenant Whipkey. What is that West Side Story, Officer Kripke? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Lieutenant Whipke. Whip you. <laughs> they did a curvy enthusiasm about it. Because he, he he meets an Officer Krupke, and he starts singing the song, and the guy's just never seen West Side Story. <laughs> He's like, come on, Officer Krupke. <laughs> so in the... <laughs> <laughs> so in the reenactment, I don't know if you noticed at the uh, military base that he's supposed to be stationed at. Like, I think it was like Fort Fort Oro or something like that. Um, they have only uh, it's uh, Camp Desert Rock. Is that what it was? I don't remember what it yeah. was, but it it um <laughs> they they had a security arm only for entering vehicles like if anybody really wanted to get into the base they could have just drove through the other side and went through the exit anybody can exit that place no problem so so you're saying anyone could enter the base you just not no anyone no, no. could leave the base no, no no anybody could anybody could i mean you could enter if you wanted if you went through the exit there's literally no way to stop you like it's a really funny if you it I don't know. It's just a weird observation that I made. I was like, that's, well, I not, think, secu- I that's think, not secure at all. Well, you got to take into account, like, back then, you know, we didn't have to worry about crazies, you know, storming a military base. Mm. We met some guys, um, and you can hear it on our Roswell episode, actually, if you want. We met we met a couple that went to Area 51 outside and, like, were, like, looking through the gate, and they just saw, like, a car... Like an off-road vehicle, kind of start like driving towards them, and they were just like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> <laughs> they just got out of there before he got close enough to say anything. Yeah, but in 1957, 1958, I don't think. Yeah, I think you're right. It was probably a little bit more lax. Uh, so July of 1958, um, Paul Whipkey leaves the base in the late afternoon in civilian clothes, and. Um, See, you could you could easily you could easily enter that base. <laughs> There's a little arm okay. to let people in, and then that that whole side you can just like fucking run through. Nobody's for guarding the that. Shit. For the listeners, um, Eli just Skype chatted us a picture, a screenshot of the show, which shows him, you know, him leaving the military base, and obviously it's just like a tiny little square set up on a, on a. Fucking California. It's not street. secure. It's not secure at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is a sense. I'm sorry, oh, Eli. Back then, we didn't need razor wire, uh, zigzag concrete barriers, rumble strips. People get crazy now. It's all those opioids that everybody's on. <laughs> Sean Levy, um, director 
of uh, Night at the Museum and director and producer of Stranger Things um, is bringing us the new Unsolved Mysteries. And hopefully things like this won't happen. Or maybe they will. Maybe You know, he's likes nostalgia, right? I mean, Stranger Things is the Duffer Brothers, but they they just got Sean, – Sean Levy is like their slick Hollywood producer that, you know, helps them maintain that vision. I guess that's the way kind of the way I see it. But, you know – Hopefully Sean Levy will produce us some dope reenactments. But do we want the reenactments to be good in the new Unsolved Mystery? Because that's know. something that I am I'm struggling with. I don't know. I, I That's a good <laughs> question. I kind of want them to be nostalgic and kind of cheesy because it's based in that time. But at the same time, I kind of want them to be like more like spot on. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we have enough of that. I don't know. I'm curious. I'm so curious to see how it turns out. Well, we're getting so sidetracked on this case. It's such an interesting one. Um, yeah. So he leaves July 1958. He leaves in the late afternoon. He drives off. He heads. He says that he's heading to a town that's less than a mile away, and he never returns to base. So he's declared a deserter. Well, I thought he was declared a wall first, and then a deserter. Oh yeah. There you go. First he's a wall, and then after 30 days he's. A deserter. So what the cops could find out is that he purchased gas in Mojave the day after he went missing. They know that. And he stayed at a hotel that night. And then he left Mojave, California and was never seen again. And the military surmised that he was stressed over his new assignment and he wandered into the desert and perished. And his body was never found. Uh, uh, I'm struggling with that. Yeah, and this is when we start to get to hear from Brother Carl. My brother has a brother named Carl. (laughs) (laughs) So Carl doesn't believe any of the shit. He doesn't think that any of the shit actually happened the way that the uh, military is saying. That he just wandered into the desert. Makes no sense. But the morning he went missing, apparently two soldiers went through his room and just ransacked the place and looked through everything and took everything, right? Yeah, they started, like, packing up all of his stuff. The day he went missing, his personal effects from his uh, barracks were uh, stripped and removed without notice to the family. Okay, so this is why the bro- what, what made the brother suspicious. You're right. That is suspicious. If he's gone, they give the family all the stuff. Well, the yeah. family's notified, and then they're there to you know, witness the collection and then the signing over of, of the belongings. But what's also interesting about this is they did this before he was reported missing, you know, like the day he left base is when they cleaned his cleaned out his room. Yeah. That's super sketch. So brother Carl was like, yeah, that's super sketch. He was (laughs) brother Carl. He sounds like a Catholic priest. (laughs) Brother Carl, brother Carl, come here. Another cool tidbit about this story, which is like, what the fuck, is that um, four weeks after he went missing, four weeks is a fancy way of saying a month, um, a rancher saw Paul's car driving down the highway with a man driving it um, in military fatigues, in camo, if you will. He looked like a soldier, whatever. And the interesting thing about that, kiddos, is that, as I mentioned... Our buddy Paul was wearing civilian clothes when he left, which could also mean nothing. He could also have had a change of clothes in his car. It's a car, but it's or it could have been someone driving a similar car. <clears throat> yeah, I don't trust any of these eyewitnesses anymore. Eyewitness accounts—they've—they've <laughs> they've all gone down the drain for me. I don't trust any of these fucks. They're nineteen eighty fucks, nineteen early nineties. Well, this happened in the the fucking 50s, so yeah. I'm going to be on TV. Um, No, no, but they're they're coming forward with this information from... Because they're going to be on Unsolved Mysteries. I'm going to be on TV, Ma. I told them I had information on a case. I saw something in 1958. My Ma's been dead for (laughs) 30 years. (laughs) Um, Also, the car... In the reenactment, looks like a cool, like, oh, yeah, that's a distinctive car. But then it takes place in the 50s, and all the cars were cool and looked like that. All the cars looked like that. Yeah, they were all super cool. No one Um, drove a shitty car back then. Yeah, they were all American-made heavy motherfuckers. Um, (laughs) That's American steel, baby. Another interesting thing is that 
Paul Whipke, we who we knew was not a smoker, not a consumer of tobacco. Um, when his car was found, there was a pile of cigarette butts right next to it. Well, that's not weird. That's kind of not weird, though. I mean, he could have just parked in a spot where some dude was smoking lots of cigs, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, were they fresh? Like, how do they know how long those some bitch has been lit? A pile of cigarettes, like in the middle of the desert next to an abandoned vehicle. Like, yeah, I guess that is. But I mean, it, the odds maybe, I don't know. You don't know. It wasn't but wasn't it found like off the road? It was it wasn't like actually like in the desert, right? I mean, it was off the side of the road on a desert road. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get into semantics with you over here, but <laughs> Okay, maybe. I don't know. <clears throat> it's kind of weird, you know. Um I think that's weird. But isn't so, every 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 road in the Mojave Desert a desert road? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, like I said, semantics. <laughs> um, another weird thing <laughs> is that it's weird that they only searched for uh, Paul's body like nine months after the car was found, which is like which like seems like to them admitting <clears throat> to something or like covering their bases, you know, at a later. At a yeah, weird that's... later date because they realized something happened. Yeah. Did you mention how they, when they discovered the car, that uh, all they found in it was uh, the keys, Whipley's suitcase, dog tags, and other personal items? No. So all of his shit was in Basically, this. yeah. All of the stuff that he had with him at the time when he left that day were just left in the car. So he did take a suitcase with him. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of weird instances that uh, that Carl uh, had brought up about just there's so many inconsistencies. Like you know, if he was going into town for a drink, then why did he have a suitcase? Yeah. Also, another crazy thing about the story is that Carl found this out like by mistake. Like they this wasn't the 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 finding of the car was not like, hey, we found your brother's car. Yeah, that he was never it, supposed to find out. No, he found out through back channels, right? I, f- I forget the actual... Let me a, see. Uh, a friend of Paul contacted Carl and asked him about the car, in which he like responded, like, like, what do you mean car? And he's like, oh, well, they found your brother's car in the desert. And he was like, whoa, 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 what? Yeah, dude, Shade Central. Fucking Shady Valley. Shady <laughs> Acres. Shady Desert. Shady Desert. Okay, um, okay. Probably not a shady <laughs> desert anywhere, uh, unless it's uh, under a cliff. And then there's this other guy, uh, the sergeant, who starts his story. Uh, sergeant, he was a bunch of things. He he worked his way up. He starts his story by saying that he asked around to what had happened, like looking into this case years later, and he was told that the case was closed and he shouldn't really poke his head into it much more than that. Um, that he was just told to shut up and just move on. Yeah, that sounds like a threat. It. Yeah, maybe not exactly shut up, but whatever. And this, I don't know if this is the same guy. I'm getting them mixed up. I think it might be. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lewis in 1957 recounts his story about how he saw like two uh, men in uh, G-men, if you will. He doesn't say it. Men in black. I don't know. They uh, two two men in plain clothes, as Robert Stack says. But in the reenactment, they have suits on. And um, they were talking to Paul and another uh, pilot, and he saw them talking on multiple occasions. And the first time he went up to them and was like, hey, uh, can I see some identification? Like, who are you guys? And they presented military IDs, and that was it. Um, right, but he, they didn't. They said that he they didn't know what division of the military they yeah, belonged to. Right? Yeah, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Lewis, or Lieutenant Colonel Lewis, whatever. Lewis... Um, says, yeah, he didn't know exactly where they were from, but he saw that this happen on multiple occasions. And he did say that he noticed a personality change, um, compared to before these guys got here and after, and they have a reenactment where he's even asking him like, uh, is everything okay? And he's like, yeah, sure. Then there's, there's another interesting, uh, little puzzling twist to this story. Paul's friend, uh, Lieutenant Charles Guest, who served with him at Camp Rock David, mysteriously uh, disappeared Ooh. on a flight and crashed uh, a few days after uh, Paul went missing. And uh, when they discovered the uh, his body or his remains, the 
crash site, the aircraft had a different serial number than the aircraft he took off in. Yeah, that's fucking creepy. That's weird. Um, that is also, I, I, I believe we'll be talking about that further on. Really? That's another Unsolved Mysteries? Oh, is it like another mystery in itself? Yeah. Some other logical explanations for what might have happened to Paul was that um, apparently it was a very, very normal thing um, during these times um, for the CIA to recruit some of these army guys for just normal intelligence. Uh, My dad, this is a sidebar, but it's actually pretty interesting. My dad always thought my grandpa worked for the CIA. Really? um, During World War II. Uh, uh, you know, maybe during World War II, but I asked him when he was in his later years and he was kind of in and out of it sometimes. And I asked him if he ever worked for the CIA and he, he straight up told me that he's like, CIA, he's like, just fucking paperwork. <laughs> That's all he said about it. He didn't tell me anything specific, but he just said, I mean, he, he, he would always, when we were kids, tell us stories and tell us things that he couldn't, he's like, oh, there's things I can't tell you. Just like that, which is cool. But uh, I think towards the end of his days, I got him to maybe admit that he he did, did you know, at, at least report to the CIA in sort of like a, you know, this is what we're doing. But it was like just paperwork. A, a broad sort of, yeah. Like, like I specifically remember like asking him about CIA when he was like, you know, in his later, he was in a home at this point, this lovely lady. It was a lady's home. She had a, she has a bunch of people that she takes care of. Yeah. He just said that it was just like paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means. It was just so paperwork. Kind of badass. Yeah, he's like, I just filling out, just filling out paperwork. <laughs> so that's something that they think could have happened. That he was recruited for a CIA thing. And I mean, and Carl's just like, if this is what happened, like at least tell us, you know, like yeah. after the fact, like we'd be happy to know that he died in a secret mission serving his country or whatever. Yeah, don't tell me that he just ran off and we don't know where he is. That sucks. No family member wants that. Yeah. And his brother his brother also does recall a fucking com- phone conversation where Paul says mentioned something about a mission. He was going to become famous. Yeah, yeah. He was going to make a name for himself. And then there's also something that Carl mentions that possibly the army set the whole thing up to um, uh, fake his death. And that he could have been, you know, placed... In another country under like an assumed name, you know, like undercover or something, you know, that he was in on it and the army, because obviously they think that the army drove his car out there and left and, it there, staged you know, it. Yeah, staged it, which is kind of interesting, but we don't know. But that is weird that that other pilot um, Went missing. goes missing and his body is found next to a plane that is... Not the same serial number as the plane that he was on, which yeah, is that's, pretty weird. That's way more than weird, I think. Um, pretty much the only kind of at least a little like bit of hope at the end of this is that the army did change his status from a deserter to died in the line of duty. Hmm. Yeah, so that so that's which is kind of is, yeah, which is like kind of them admitting well, some shit, yeah, yeah, right? like, yeah sort yeah, of. Yeah. So what happened is. Uh, the case went cold and remained so until 1982 when the Army Board, Army Board convened a three-day hearing into his disappearance. Uh, they, they concluded that Whipke died the day after he vanished and, uh, con- and basically stated that he died in the line of duty. How so? Or something? killed in action. That's weird. So that's them admitting something. Something, right? something went down, and they were like, "Oh shit, we got yeah." Get rid of this so, guy. so there, there are two theories about this. The one theory is that you know maybe he was recruited into the CIA, and um, you know they faked his death so he could you know become you know a but spy it, or whatever. But what um, his brother Carl actually believes what happens is that his brother Paul was killed. Uh, because the government didn't want people to find out that he was essentially a human guinea pig on nuclear arms tests. Is that why his teeth fell out? <laughs> that would be one way. And so anyway, after years and years of him petitioning army records, the army did finally break down and said, yeah, you know, your brother did fly five nuclear flights. So it, it, it leads you to wonder, you know, 
five nuclear flights, that's a lot of radiation you're being exposed to. And then you have all these uh, medical conditions starting to decline. What better way before someone starts asking questions like, hey, this guy's been flying for the army and now he's falling apart. Yeah. What better way to save face than, you know, just get rid of him, make him disappear. Get rid of him. Or maybe he just or maybe he did just go fucking nuts. Maybe that's why they just respectfully said died in the line of duty because there was like the psychological aspects of the radiation poisoning, which I'm sure there has to be some. I mean, I'm kind of just like grasping, but you know, maybe oh, no. he did just go no, fucking nuts. Totally. My my grandfather was a nuclear veteran and just by guarding a bomb, he got like four different types of cancer from it. Wow. <laughs> but is there like shit it can fuck with your brain and like you know, psychologically and stuff? I'm sure, I'm sure there's gotta be I mean so, I mean, I was just thinking, like, oh, maybe they did, they were telling the truth that he did just kind of go nuts and AWOL and drove off and died in the desert somewhere. But then they kind of changed it to died in the line of duty because it was kind of shit that, you know, they put him through that brought him there, kind of an out of respect thing. But, you know, maybe, you know, we'll never know that actual truth. Yeah. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Okay, we got a lost loves, guys. Bear with us. Lake, um, Lake Placid, New York, ladies and gentlemen. Lake Placid, New York. Catherine Bickford. Catherine Bickford. She's nineteen when she gets married to Andrew. I never get Andrew's um, full name because I'm taking notes quick because we're gonna podcast Rossman, in thirty minutes. Rossman. Rossman. His name's Rossman. <laughs> got Andrew Rossman. Thank you, Eli. He's a bit older. He's a bit older. Um, he's a bit older than her. Um, she was in love, but he wasn't the marrying type. Very, very um, gruff man. So. In other words, he liked to bang other women. <laughs> he liked to bang. He was a shit tart. He was a big old scum fucker. I can't, um, I can't just settle down with one woman, Catherine. So, but, but back in the day, this is fucking whack as fuck. This is weird. Um, they were never married, but they lived together and they had two children. Um, Gary and Catherine, I can't be tied down, Catherine. No, no, I'm not going to marry you. And fuck, who's the? I forget the daughter's name. Stop asking, Gwen and Gwen. Gary and and Gwen. So Andrew leaves when Gary's like a tiny, tiny baby, and Gary is the second child. So mom's got to work. Mom becomes a waitress. She's supporting the two kids, and she had a really nice family for support. The win, the winches, the winches. Um, they were sweet sweethearts. Um, sweetheart, sweet sweetheart. Um, they supported her. 1935, Gary is actually baptized, and um, Catherine's a single mom and looked down upon in the community, kind of like hated on because she's single. But the winches stand by her and they protect her and they take care of her. And they're like, she's a nice lady and these are great kids. And um, so they were there and supported her at her uh, child's baptization. Baptism. <laughs> so after the baptism, I was going to say baptization again. <laughs> after the baptizing, um, she takes Florence aside. Um, and Florence is the daughter of the winches. And she says that she has a job offer at her uncle's bar and grill, uh, restaurant, whatever. But she can't take the kids and she's she needs the money or, you know, they're going to – like, that's it. So the winches agree to take um, Gary, the boy – they think it's just going to be for a little while, but of course that's it turns out to be longer than that. And then the daughter, Gwen, goes with um, Catherine's parents, her grandparents. Um, she came and visited often, but um, never came for them. In 1939, Gary's three years old. Um, Catherine signed some papers that, which she thought would allow the winches to further their care of Gary. But really what it was was permission for adoption in general, I suppose, because it actually gave permission for them to put Gary up for adoption. So Florence couldn't adopt Gary because she was not married. And the winches, the ma ma and pa winch, if you will, they couldn't adopt Gary because they were too old. So if you weren't married, you couldn't adopt. And if you were too old, you couldn't adopt. It's pretty fucked up. So, um, he was taken away for adoption. Um, and there's like a really sad scene of like Florence, uh, kind of preparing Gary. He was scared of the trains. He saw them and they made noise and they spooked him out and her knowing that he would eventually, you know, be taken on a train to like child services. 
she, they like walked by the train station and um, the conductor lets them sit on the train and not be so scared of it. And it's really fucking sad. Um, so he wasn't scared of the train anymore. And uh, one day, Gary, you're going to go on the orphanage train. Well, see, that's the thing. Yeah. The orphan train, but see, that's the thing is they don't, uh, she didn't tell him that he would be going or anything like this would happen. And then later child services arrives and takes him away. They didn't even let her give him a toy or, like, any clothes or anything. It was fucking weird. Yeah, they were fucking dicks. So Catherine and her daughter were reunited, but um, never the son, never Gary. She died in 1984, um, Catherine, the mom, and she never got to meet Gary again. She never got to see her son. Gary Bickford was his name, and um, I actually kind of Googled this one, weirdly. It's weird. Um, Gwen was able to get in contact with Gary's daughters. Oh, weird. Multiple daughters. Yeah, she actually learned that Gary was adopted in 1941, and he was renamed Robert Ernest Lundstrom. He had three kids, Christina, Bruce, and Debbie. Wow. Okay, but this is the weird part, guys. Robert, as he was renamed, vanished sometime in 1964. From Huntington, New York, and has never been found. What? What? So, this kid... he has, like, his own missing persons case. That's so weird! His... The kid... Okay, so, let me get this straight. The kid... Gary. Gary is taken by protective services and is put up for adoption. Correct? Yes. And he finally gets adopted... So he's missing two only his his mother and his real sister, Gwen, right? Yeah. And the other And the uh, winches. Winches, yeah. So they're looking for this guy. This meanwhile he gets adopted, he changes his name to Robert Ernest Lundstrom and has kids and then later goes missing to everybody. He's a double missing person. That's <laughs> so Fucked up. God. <laughs> this guy, the luck of this guy. Oh, man. Um, so his daughter thinks that he changed his last name to Keegan for some reason. And she also thinks that he might not want to be found. So in two, in 2001, Gwen was reunited with Gary's children. But that's it. Uh, a few years later, Debbie passed away. And Gwen and his two surviving children are now searching together. Do you think he's to what mad? To Gary slash Robert. Do you think he's mad that, that he got put up for adoption and then like now, oh, now my mom wants me and now they know who I am and screw this. Could that be it? Like, I don't know. Yeah. And his daughter passed away too after. Dude. He's just like, too many people want to know who I am. Yeah. <laughs> Just let me die His in peace. Think that he might not want to be found. I want to go back to New York. I just want to be on the. I just want to be left alone. I want to be Gary Keegan. That's so <laughs> fucking weird. I just want to be Gary. I just want to be Gary. <laughs> All right, last case. Last case. We can get through it. This weird dude who just goes missing, right? Jim Rice. This chick was crazy. This is a missing persons. We're going to St. Croix, um, located in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Dan and I were in the U.S. Virgin Islands. We're going to LaCroix? We were in Tortola. I had a LaCroix earlier. Oh, yeah, LaCroix. 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 I don't know. Sorry, French people, again. Um... So, uh, St. Croix, St. Croix. <laughs> Screw these uh, Americans. <laughs> I, will I, not, LaCroix? I will not listen to this podcast anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I shall turn this off. Uh, this is a not real podcast. This is bad podcast. Um, so, in 1984, Jim Rice, good old Jim Rice, and um, his crazy wife, Astarte. <laughs> What a f- stupid name. You could pick any name to Astarte. change your name to, and she changed it uh, to Astarte. Astarte, yeah. 
They move to St. Croix to build their beautiful retirement home and live in peace and dreamful dreamness. So a couple years later, in 1986, good old Jim um, needs some shoulder surgery. So he's got to go to San Francisco. Luckily, he's got a cool daughter who lives in San Francisco. So he's like, hey, I'm going to go visit you. And uh, let's just say he never uh, made it to San Francisco. And let's just say maybe he never made the trip at all. Maybe he never even got on a plane. And you're talking, you're talking uh, Jim's daughter, the Liza Minnelli looking chick. Lucille too, definitely. So Jim Rice was a bomber pilot in World War II and he made millions in the construction business. That's his backstory. That's all you get. Um, He was worth two million bucks. Um, He left his wife. Wait, wait, wait. He was only only worth two million dollars. Yeah. What a poser, right? (laughs) (laughs) He left his wife and presumably mom of his children um, because he met a star day and they were like, they just like got together. They just like fucking click. You just get me a star. Probably. It was probably wet. It was probably fucking wet. You just get me a star. Um, don't you get me a star. Hey, <laughs> whatever. So she was in, um, she, she was in prison for bankruptcy and we'll get into that. I don't know. Unsolved mysteries likes to mention shit and then go back to it. It's the hook. They like to hook you. And interestingly enough, three years after Jim disappeared, so did a star day. Um, a star day had three grown sons from other marriages. In 1979, they moved to Hawaii, her and Jim. And two years later, Noble, who was a star day's son, this chick sucks at names, um, <laughs> was hurt in an explosion. Yeah. He was cleaning a and boat with gasoline. <laughs> He was clean. <laughs> That's exactly what he was doing. I'll uh, I'll take arson for four hundred. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he told the cops he was cleaning this boat, and it was like three in the morning when the boat exploded, and it just seems like oh, it's cleaning with this. They they fucking obviously like <laughs> were like let's like blow up the boat for like. Money? For, oh yeah, yeah. Like, well, they insurance. find out insurance they, money. They find out that it was it was behind. The note was behind, right? They were they they weren't making payments on it, and oh, <laughs> so he was cleaning the boat with gasoline. He's like, I don't know how it exploded. <laughs> Jesus um, they, Christ! I didn't know this was flammable. So they so they claim it was a total accident, and they didn't get charged for it. They never got extradited back to Hawaii for it either. Oh, those bastards. I was um, wondering when they showed Noble's picture, I was like, why does it look like a mugshot? Turns out it probably was. It was, yeah. Well, the, so they do initially get charged for the arson of the yacht, but um, nothing comes of it. Her, her and Jim separated, and um, they both moved back to California, and she was never, like, charged officially. She was never extradited back. She filed for bankruptcy in 81, and in 1982... She was charged with altering documents, and she went to prison for a while, for a couple of years, I guess. Um, and at that time, Jim would visit her, and they got back together. She said that she was going to, you know, be a good uh, judge, a good girl. She was going to be a good girl yeah. and not do stupid shit like that. I'm not going to do any bad things. I'm not going to tell my son to clean your yacht with glass of gasoline anymore. I swear, I swear. gasoline. It, it just it really cleans a window beautifully. <laughs> Leaves no streaks. It's beautiful. Yeah. Don't you call so your Liza Minnelli-looking daughter and tell her to come out for some brunch. <laughs> tell her to come out for some motherfucking brunch. So that's when they moved to the Virgin Islands and were caught up with present day. You see how we did that? There we go. Unsolved Mysteries did that. So um, in 1986 is when he phones his daughter and says, I'm going to San Francisco to get this surgery. He never gets there. So two weeks later, the daughter calls and is like, what the fuck? Okay. First of all. I don't understand why it took two weeks. Like, wouldn't the daughter and like, well, my dad never showed up. What the hell? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. So that's kind of weird. A star day says that, oh yeah, he ran off to Australia with a woman and they're sailing on the great barrier reef. Like, first of all, like, why would you know that much specifics about your husband running off with another woman? Yeah. <laughs> she makes it sound all you know, romantic. It's just- yeah, what the fuck? It's yeah. weird. And then a few days later, she has a different tale to tell. She says that um, he flew from St. Croix to Miami 
to Miami. Um, and um, then she apparently at some other time after that said that neither of those were true or something. So Jim's family hires a private investigator. The guys that really get the nitty gritty, get into the dirt and get the shit done. So they find a declaration to the trip from Miami, sorry, to Miami. And there's an obvious Ford signature and like, it's weird. So someone, they got seats, but the people that were actually on that flight was, uh, a star her son and her son's girlfriend. That's so right? weird, right? Like you can buy seats in somebody else's name back then. Not have to show any yeah. ID. Yeah. And it's just like, you're a man. Let's do it. <laughs> and of course, um, a little while uh, before the date of him going to San Francisco, she signed documents that gave her um, power, power of, attorney. of attorney over all of his fucking life. All yeah. of his shit. <clears throat> Another fucked up thing. Wait, there's more? <laughs> that, that it's like obvious that this... Yeah, that this chick totes got rid of him is that days after Jim goes missing, Astarte and her son just fucking sell all his shit off. Like, Ugh. straight up have, like, a garage sale and just sell all his shit. That's so sad. And then um, Kathy, who's the Liza Minnelli daughter, receives this letter from Australia that's hand-typed with a shitty fake signature saying that, like, hey, what's up? I'm here in Australia. It's doing, I, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I am. I am doing pretty good. And Shoulder's still fucked they, up, though. I didn't ever have that surgery. Sh- but <laughs> Yeah, should have had that surgery, but, but Australia sure is nice. This note had I and am written together without a space, which is a common mistake with uh, Astarte's shitty writing. Oh, yeah, linguistics. And, yeah, so they were, they were kind of, you know, they don't have the hard proof, but they were like, yeah, she wrote that. Um, so in January 1989... Uh, Astarte is charged with bank and mail fraud for trying to get to Jim's assets. And then she gets released on bail and fucking dips out and disappears. So she, so she was, uh, on the run for a couple of years. And then in 1991, um, in Santa Barbara, she's arrested, but there's never a body. So they couldn't actually give her a murder charge. I mean, the police still think she's a prime suspect, but they couldn't give her a murder charge. So she pleads guilty to the to bank and passport fraud, um, and she serves 15 years in jail. But eventually she gets moved to a lighter prison uh, with lighter security. And she walks out the front door during, like, a fire <laughs> drill, I guess, right? The guy explains, like, we had our account, and then we did a fire drill, and she wasn't there. Yeah. She just walked out the fucking door. But after that shit aired on the original Unsolved Mysteries... A viewer recognized her living in Spokane, Washington. We found you. And she you. went back to prison, served her 15 years, and has since been released. Yeah, now she's living among us. I don't know if she's still alive, but she's definitely a murderer. Yeah, she definitely killed Mr. Rice. She Oh, she totally did it. Totally did it. I mean, it's so obvious. I mean, maybe her son actually did the nitty-gritty, but yeah. <laughs> Cleaned his shoulder with gasoline. That's how he did it. That's how he disinfected it. He's like, this'll do. And then he just fucking lit old Jim on fire. <laughs> Aw. <laughs> you said he lit old Jim on fire. <laughs> Poor old bastard. Um, uh, yeah, this, so this has been an episode, guys. Uh, it wasn't so bad. In. No, 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 no. We had some laughs. We had some laughs. The good thing is, is uh, our next episode um, takes place in El Paso. Ooh, does it? I was actually gonna look 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 this really? up because I, I believe so. What are we talking about next week, Eli? So next week we're talking about a couple of things. We're gonna t- be talking about drugs being smuggled into the country. We got a couple lost loves, and we're gonna be talking about a woman who meets a man in a singles bar, and a week later is found seriously murdered. So they're trying to figure out who this man is. Could he be a serial killer? So we're the Stack Pack on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. That's where we have more fun. I'm Davey Howe, D-A-V-Y-H-O-W, David Howell. I'm Rodan, Road underscore Dan. And I'm Big Bad Final Dad. And for every mystery, there is someone somewhere who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone is listening. And perhaps that someone is you, good people.